This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome to a very special edition of UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. And when I say special, I mean it. TapJoy is sponsoring this event, and we're going to be tapping into some serious joy today. Due to their efforts, due to their financial support, we're able to um, have this filmed, and I'm so pleased because we have Troy Carter with us today. And I've seen Troy speak, I've been blessed with that experience, and now I'm glad that hundreds of students here, as well as hundreds of thousands of students and, and students of business all over the world are going to get a chance to share in his wisdom. One other word on TapJoy. If you're watching this, if you're running and you've downloaded this in your podcast, or maybe you're watching this on TV, keep in mind that TapJoy might, might be able to help you make a little bit more money. They're the leading mobile marketing automation platform. So if you have folks coming to your website or coming to your mobile app, talk to TapJoy. They can probably make you some more money. Let's talk about Troy Carter. Troy is a 20-year veteran in entertainment. He's steered the careers of many people that you guys know. And he's also been investing in the next wave of tech entrepreneurs. In 2010, he founded Atom Factory, which has its roots in music and media and technology, employs a staff of 30 people. And what's interesting about Atom Factory is it's also it's a management company in kind of the classic sense, and it's managing acts like John Legend and Megan Trainer. But it's also working with startup entrepreneurs. So it's a melding of both. It's not a bifurcation. Uh, Carter has best invested in a portfolio of over 80 startups at this point. And some of them you might have heard of, Uber, Spotify, Lyft, Dropbox, Warby Parker, and a number have been acquired. Social Cam was acquired by Autodesk, Songza was acquired by Google, Sumbling was acquired by Yahoo, and Misfit was acquired by Fossil. In 2015, Troy started a new firm. He's the founding partner of Cross Culture um, Venture Capital. He's also been a frequent shark guest on Shark Tank. And this is an accolade that I want on my resume. He was named a Henry Crown Fellow by the Aspen Institute. I've never even attended an Aspen Institute conference, let alone been named anything. Something to aspire to. So I always tell you guys, it's great to be successful in business. It's great to have a wonderful family life, which Troy does, wonderful wife and um, beautiful children. But it's also important to give back to your community when you get to that point in your career when you have the time and the wherewithal. Troy's done it with his money, but he's also done it with his time, which is often a more expensive way to, to give back. He's involved in a number of philanthropic organizations, including the Grammy Foundation, United Nations Global Entrepreneurs Council, as well as the Franklin Institute in his hometown of Philadelphia. So I mentioned I had the pleasure of seeing Troy speak. I was, I was compelled by his story. Luckily for me, there was a break after his talk, um, and I walked up to Troy and introduced myself. Troy did not know me. Just, you know, we had no, no relationship whatsoever, and I'll always admire this about him. I, I walked up to him, introduced myself, and I said, Troy, I teach at UC Santa Barbara. I'd love for my students to be exposed to your story. Is there any way we can work into your busy schedule a chance for you to speak? A nanosecond went by, half a nanosecond, if, if even that. He looks me in the eye, he says, John, it would be an honor. And he's here with us today. Let's welcome him to our class. No, of course, of course, of course. All right, well, that was a 10-minute introduction. I'm, I'm exhausted now, and I didn't even get into a tenth of all of your accomplishments. But <laughs> Good I, morning. I sincerely mean it. I mean, you were, 
you were what I epitomize as being a yes. And I often tell young people, just be a yes. Somebody throws something your way, don't do what so many people do, is like think of the 99 reasons why that might not be a good idea. John, I'm in, and I love that about you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So you and I were, I'm obviously older than you. but Not I, much. Not much. <laughs> well, you were probably kicking around when I was in Philly. So I lived in West Philly for a while. Uh-huh. I didn't live where all the other students lived. I lived sort of, um, I grew up in D.C., so I was quite comfortable living out there in West Philly. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a great experience for me. I had good local bars, and I felt like I got to get that vibe a little bit. Um, but again, you were probably you were probably shoveling snow, uh-huh. which I want to talk about. So I like that you, um, I like that you ended up meeting Miss, Mrs. Leonard in your neighborhood, and that you saw that as an opportunity to learn something. You're insatiably curious, obviously. Talk a little bit about your work ethic, the fact that even at a young age you were out there hustling, and how and the role that Mrs. Leonard played in that progress. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think. Um Watching my mom, um, I grew up in a single single parent household, and um, and like John said, uh, West Philadelphia, born and raised, very proud. And um, but you know, we we lived over top of a of a hardware store, and um, and in Philly, and watching my mom get up at five thirty a.m. every single day for for you know she did it she did it for thirty years um, to go work at Children's Hospital it just instilled a, a sort of work ethic in me. Right. And um, so I started working for, you know, for Miss Leonard, probably maybe when I was about nine years old or so. And she was a lady that lived on my grandmother's block. And, um, and she was, she literally, you know, and Phil- Philadelphia is a very segregated city and probably still is. And she was the only white person in our neighborhood and she was probably 200 years old. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, for some reason, she just loved me. And I used to run errands for her. I used to, like, go to the store for her and um, help her get up and down the steps. And, um, and she, had a, she had a library. And, like, you know, we lived in a hood. So, you know, all of the row houses were probably maybe, you know, 1,100 square feet, you know, two, yep. two stories. But um, her front bedroom was turned into a library. She lived there by herself, and it was, like, majestic to me. It was, like, the f- first time seeing, like, a library shelf with books. And it's, you know, looking back, it probably was really small, but that started my love for books. And, and working for her, um, literally, she, I, I used to plant uh, peanuts for her and saw peanuts grow and like, you know, all of these little crazy projects with Miss Leonard. So she, Miss Leonard started my hustle by giving me little nickels. Yep. So just continuing along the lines of you didn't finish high school. I'm not holding that against you, dude. <laughs> um, what, what are your thoughts now that um, with regard to, you know, you didn't walk through the halls of a university. When you sit down with an entrepreneur today, how important do you think? And, you know, these young people out here I ask themselves this question. How important today is a college degree for a tech entrepreneur? Um, not important at all. Um, but education is extremely important. Right. You know, so I've never, you know, I've hired Stanford graduates. I hired, you know, high school dropouts. I've hired, you know, 
people from MIT, like you name it, we, you know, we've, we've hired them. I've never looked at a piece of paper though. Like, you know, mm. they could be, by the way, they could be lying to me and say <laughs> they graduated Stanford and I never. I would ask it fellow. Yeah, I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never, I never researched it or whatever, but you know, for me, it's, it's, what is that person, especially as an entrepreneur is, right. is really based off of, um, a high amount, a high level of curiosity, a high level of domain expertise, a high level of, of resilience, and um, and some of the most successful entrepreneurs, you know, didn't graduate college and, and, right. and get a degree, but you know they they've continued to educate themselves along the way and do an extremely deep dive on whatever domain that they're going after. Yep. Now, I've always found that as a common um, theme with entrepreneurs is we're insatiably curious as you are, and it's a joy to go deep. It's like it's not like, oh, my God, now i got to learn about this. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, what a blessing. Yeah. I was involved in cardiac uh, surgery for a while, and for me, I got to sit down with some of the world's greatest cardiac surgeons, and they were actually going to take the time to explain things to me. Mm-hmm. That's a blessing. Yeah. That's not a burden. Yeah. All right, so we're going to go to a student question in a second, but I want to I stay in this theme for a minute. I, I, one of the things I'd like to do, and I have not done it in my life yet, but I do want to uh, contribute and figure out a way where we can get we can we can we don't need to instill it, but inspire the entrepreneurial spirit in in inner cities. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually I've got a guy. We've got a long term plan. We're going to do something in this area. I haven't done it yet, but I know folks have. Like I love the code twenty forty. You know I know you're familiar with that program. Do you have thoughts in that area? What do you think? I mean you're you're such an icon. What what can we do to go into those neighborhoods? And help those kids follow a path similar to you or similar to Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I think is I think mirroring has a lot to do with it. You know, if you if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm. So um, so I don't even know if it's necessarily something that can just be taught as much as emulated. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of uh, entrepreneurs in our in our neighborhood. Right. So it wasn't. They weren't tech entrepreneurs. It was the guy who owned the hardware store that we lived over top of. The guy who owned the electronics store down the street, um, the guy who owned the candy store, like every, it just, sure. these guys, they, they were entrepreneurs and they weren't rich, but they might have had the better house in the neighborhood. They might have had, you know, where other people didn't have cars, they might have had a car, yep. you know, so, so it was being able to um, emulate and model. So I think, I think that's, that's very important. You know, I think it's great with, um, you know, seeing code 2040 and, and, um, and people who are focused on computer science. But also, but what, one thing I do know is everybody's not going to be an engineer. Yeah. So, um, but the point of entry to start your own business, anybody in here literally can, you know, start their own business today, you know? So, um, so I think it's figuring out, other points of entry for entrepreneurship outside of computer science. Yep, that's a good point. Yeah, I think um, yeah we often too too often equate entrepreneurship with a tech entrepreneur. Yeah, and and I I and I talk about it in here. I value all forms of entrepreneurship. It's, right. Same and, here. And to me, the underlying message isn't be a tech entrepreneur, write software. It's control your own destiny. Yeah. And I think that's a powerful message. Mm-hmm. And I think especially in an inner city where it's very easy to feel like. The cards are stacked against you. Yeah, and to have someone say, "Look, maybe maybe you have it more difficult than some kids at UCSB or UCLA or USC. Maybe you do, but you can still control your own destiny." And here's how. Yep. Here's how you can do it. Let's take the first student's question. Great. Hi, Troy. Hi. 
It's working. Um, so I'm a big fan of Shark Tank, and it definitely seems like an intimidating atmosphere. So how did you feel going into the tank up against a group of people who, at least appearing on the show, are really competitive and aggressive with one another? And did this lead you to make any investment decisions that you normally wouldn't have outside of that environment? No, you know, it's, um, they, they're, all, they're all guppies in real life. So. <laughs> and they're very, they, the, the guys were, and um, the crew, the team were very welcoming. So um, at first, you know, initially I turned down the show for a couple of years and just, you know, um, I, I was a big fan and I was the guy at home shouting at the TV, don't do that deal or he's an idiot. Like, so I was at, at home being like an armchair quarterback. But um, I thought, this, you know, I, but I love the show. And one of the things you, to, to, the, to this point is Shark Tank's one of those shows where anybody at home feels like they can do that idea yep. that, that was on the show. So it makes it very, very accessible. And uh, but once the lights went on and you realize you're spending your own money, then that's when your instinct comes out and um, and common sense kicks in. But uh, it was it was a couple of deals that we put in offers on, but nothing. Once we got into the due diligence process, it wasn't deals that uh, that I would have necessarily put in my in my portfolio. Okay, cool. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. Thanks. So I, I wrote a little bit about Shark Tank, not trying to incite Mark Cuban. He uh -huh. flaming. It was in the Wall Street Journal. He, uh -huh. All he did was drive more clicks. So I got a ton of clicks on that article. <laughs> but my point was, look, it's a great show. But I wouldn't want a student watching that show and thinking that's how you do venture capital. Yeah. It's not, yeah. right? It's, it's, yeah. As you know, and, it, and as, as I learned later, is the show isn't just the 15 minutes that you pitch. I had a student that went on. He ended up getting a million bucks. It's, they actually sit down for about an hour and talk to you. It's not just you know, yeah. you're in and out. So yeah. anyway, but watch the show for entertainment. The uh, longest pitch, I think, went for three hours. Wow. Yeah, three hours. Yeah, and it's, that's not necessarily apparent on the show because mm -hmm. it's an entertainment show yeah. and they got to work the commercials and everything else. And I think that was one of the toughest things for me because, you know, for us, our process is we get to know entrepreneurs. Right. So right. it's like, you know, we do our initial meeting. You know, we get to spend the day. I go, you know, I'll go and spend, you know, a full day in an entrepreneur's office, see how they are with their team. You know, we do a thorough amount of due diligence on the person and the culture of the company. Mm -hmm. And in this circumstance, you know, you have to, you're forced to make a quick decision. Although you get to investigate the deal once the show, you know, once the show goes off, that once the cameras go off. But uh, it was definitely different from my, my normal process. Totally, totally. Yeah. And as long as you know that watching the show, you still can learn stuff, right? Yeah. You can totally learn stuff. No, I mean, like the fact that, you know, it was a kid that walked up to me. I think I was in Ohio. And this kid is probably 11 or 12 years old. And he's a big fan of the show. And he's talking... He's talking about he's talking investment terms right, like he was right. a mini VC. Right. So like just to see that people are kind of learning about business through the show is totally. good. And I like the accessible products as well. They're tangible, they're yes. real, consumer oriented, yep. which is good for the show because you can drive sales. Mm -hmm. So getting back to your bio and your background, you're now correct me, but I think you're early teens and you're you want to be a performer and you think you're a rapper. I'm only saying that because you say that <laughs> you thought you were a rapper. Um, and you just started hanging out at, at D, DJ Jazzy Jeff and, and Will Smith's studios, okay? Not, not quite. Oh, okay. we, we, we used to stalk Jazzy Jeff. Oh, okay. So hang, hanging out in front at a studio trying to knock on the door is a little different from hanging with them. In our minds, we were hanging with them, though. But um, no, I met, so in, I, like I said, I was this huge music junkie. So in ninth grade, I met my best friend, 
and he was just rapper. So we decided we're going to form this rap group. So, he, so we said, if Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince meet us, they're going to give us this record deal. So, uh, so we used to hop the train. And um, so we didn't have money for the train. So the train used to pull up and we used to hop over the turnstile and then take the train down to Jazzy Jeff's studio. And we did it for six months and Jeff would never let us into the studio. So uh, he was scared of us. He thought we were like stalkers <laughs> outside every day. And, um, but we did it for six months. It was snow and we would stand outside in the snow. And finally we knew somebody in the studio and they let us in and we popped in our uh, cassette tape that we had and um, that we worked so hard on and quickly learned that we sucked. And, um, but uh, Will Smith was kind enough and his manager James took us under their wing and, um, and basically taught us, every, you know, taught us the business. So like when Will went out to do Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I ended up going out to LA, kind of learning about the TV business and um, did some music. Uh, but hated L.A., went back to the East Coast or whatever. But, um, but in, actually, it's funny, Jazzy, Jazzy Jeff emailed me yesterday. Um, <laughs> he and I are still good buddies. But, yeah, but they took me under their wing. So I want to hear that tape someday, by the way. You should put that out. I, you know you still have I it. I buried that Don't thing. act like you don't have that thing. You have it. You try to get Lady Gaga YouTube, to do YouTube it. has it. <laughs> Is it on YouTube? It's on YouTube. Oh, okay. Good. YouTube has everything. everything yeah. I should be suing YouTube. <laughs> I don't get royalties for it. Maybe this is your chance to be in They probably owe me 75 cents. At right least, now. at yeah. least. For, for, the, for the four views. <laughs> so, so with Will Smith, I mean, we, we don't know him. You know him, but, you know, we don't know him other than his personal persona. But it's, he has a very positive personal persona, which I think you do as well. Were there specific lessons you learned with him, learned from him about grace or about handling people? Or? Um, Will, Will is probably one of the hardest working people mm-hmm. I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he put us through boot camp, you know, so literally, you know, from he used to give us a vocabulary word every single day. Really? Every day. It was a new vocabulary word. And um, and which we had to you know memorize and repeat. He literally had us in his in his suit. Do you remember any of them? Um, Putting you on the spot. No, one of them was like uh, recapitulate. Ah. I'm like, what in the what the f- what? Like, when am I ever gonna use this word? Well, yeah, but like, then a week later you were like, well, wait a minute, I'm gonna recapitulate on that. <laughs> yeah, no, but he just would give us random words. But uh, <laughs> it, it, but he really he what hard work was the one thing I learned from Will, mm. and what Will was great at. Will was never the best rapper. He was never the best TV actor. He was right. never the best film actor. But he would put him, he, would, he had this maniacal drive that he would work so hard and practice so hard to the point that nobody was going to beat him for the part. Nobody was, you know, it's, and, and, I, and I watched it. And, um, and also what I learned from Will, Will always had this sense of optimism mm-hmm. in whatever he did. So yep. no matter how hard something was or what the what the circumstances were there was always this uh glimpse or this underlying optimism under it and um so and and it's infectious when you're with somebody you know that that often and also when you see positive results um from from that hard work and optimism so a lot of that was learned in my initial um style that that i developed Yep, that's very important. We talked about social optimism here the other day. Just this idea that 
I assume that most people are going to respond positively. 100%. And then they do. 100%. And, so, and then it just feeds yourself. 100%. If I assume that you're probably not going to connect with me, you're, there's going to be an issue, then yeah. there probably will be. So, so one of my, like, my, um, my Bible is, is the alchemist, right? And, um, that's what we're reading in here. Okay, so that's my Bible. I was listening, uh, like, is, I listened to it on the car ride here. I listened to it. I drove oh. to Coachella yesterday, and I'm awesome. listening to it or whatever. And um, I just, it's, it, it, for me... It's just like one. It's, it's it's a certain ethos that I that I live by, right? And um, but one of the things in there, and I think one of the most important lines in there, and I'm summarizing, is that when you desire something uh, bad enough and you want it bad enough, the universe conspires. You know, everybody and everything in the universe conspires around this idea, and um, and. That's that's been my life since I was, you know, since 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 I could remember. And um, I just moved into a new house and I've been unpacking over the last few weekends. And when I turned 30, my mom and my wife gave me this book. Right. And I'm a person I don't save a lot of stuff and I kind of do things and move on and. I never it really took pictures at events and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I always just kind of keep moving forward and never, never look back. But when I turned 30, I just sold my company to uh, I, ju- I just sold my, my management company. And I was kind of go- in a little bit of a funk because I'm like, oh, should I have really done it? And, um, and my wife and my mom gave me this book that they put together for uh, I think it was Father's Day. And I opened it up and it was this thing on my life, literally. So as a kid, I used to write down all my goals and everything oh, that I wanted to do. Right. And I found this book again day before yesterday. But when they first gave it to me, I literally was waterworks because it's like, oh, my God, it's so emotional. Yep. And my mom wrote this letter. It opens up and my mom wrote a, a handwritten note. And it means more to me now because she passed away two years ago and I, did, I forgot she wrote this thing for me and I didn't have any letters from her or anything like that. So and it said, um, I'm so proud of you. I want you to read these letters that you wrote to yourself. Oh, man. And at 19, I wrote out what I wanted to do in five years, what I wanted to do in 10 years, where I wanted to be in 20 years. And the level of accuracy was, I'm, I'm, I'm in awe because it's things that I'm doing literally right now. And at 30, when they gave it to me, I had already accomplished every single thing that I said I would do besides marrying the girl that I said I wanted to marry at that time. <laughs> the most important thing. I got the better version of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's but when we look at the book The Alchemist and you think about like things that like the Napoleon Hill books that I would read as a kid and everything else or whatever, it's a certain magic in life yep. and a cert, certain intangible in life that that's why I'm glad in business school you're reading The Alchemist because certain things and when we talk about entrepreneurship, I think entrepreneurs have a certain magic to we're alchemists and that's the difference between us and other people it's this whole thing about knowing how to will things into your life and 
also knowing how to use the downside of events to your advantage mm-hmm. and kind of understanding that is not the world necessarily working against you because sometimes we get into these funks when things aren't going yep. the way we want them to go yep. where we think it's bad luck. We think, oh, it's just not meant to be. We think all of these things that are bad where when you, re- when you really live by that mantra that the universe conspires to make great things happen and all things happen for the greater good and, and, and this certain underlying optimism, although it's painful at that specific time, really having the trust and faith that it can work out, that it will work out to, to your advantage. And I, I always call, I call it pa- painful labor, beautiful baby. You, uh, go through the, you go through the pain and, yeah. you know, but it's painful. So you, you, you had a number of successes. Eve was one of your first. You guys had a really good long run there, mm-hmm. all based on a handshake. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure that you learned a little bit from that, um, you know, when you move forward with, with Gaga and others. But I want to love Eve, but I want to kind of go over that quickly because we get some other stuff we want to talk about. So you find yourself on Santa Monica Boulevard um, in, your, in your car, Ventura Boulevard, excuse me. You haven't met Stephanie yet. Things are not good, right? You're, you're hurting financially, and you start crying in your car. Um, up until about, it was actually last year, it was the first time I ever publicly talked about my crying, uh, and these guys know about it, me crying on my couch with my wife sitting right there because I felt like I was a total failure. Mm-hmm. I had brought her out to California. It didn't work. I was just ready to say, you know, uncle, like, I'm out of here. Um, and you had that moment. And one thing I, I'm admire the fact that you came out of that moment, but I also admire the fact that you did not declare bankruptcy when that would have been the easy way out. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you want to just talk about that and how, how did that pay dividends down the road? I mean, obviously, it, it, it paid dividends in your moral character. Did you see it in, in other ways? Did, it, did, it ever, did anyone ever come back to you and say, dude, I totally respected that? Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know I, I'd, I'd sold my company in, in 2004 and um, to, to a company called Sanctuary, and, uh, and I ended up knowing that I made a terrible mistake selling, selling the company. But it was my first liquidity event as a founder. And, um, and as much as I, you know, want, I, I wanted the money, I, I, you know, I ignored all of the red flags that mm-hmm. this wasn't the right company to be with. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I ended up negotiating a deal to be able to get the company back and start, start this new company that I invested heavily in. And um, decided that Eve was going to be, you know, she and I were going to go back out on, on our own and do, do this again. And, um, and in the midst of making this big investment and, every, and everything else, um, she walked in one day and fired me. And, and this was after about eight years of us working together. And she and I were like brother and sister, like really close, but decided she wanted to take her career in another direction. And I was financially hedged. Um, really kind of counting on, you know, the, my, what I projected was going to be this new business. And this was 2007 and got completely wiped out. And, you know, a lot of you guys are young, but this was like the height of the financial crisis. And so you couldn't get loans. Everybody, you know, in my network was broke al- along with me. But my house was being foreclosed on. My cars were, were repossessed. We had to move out of our offices. I had, a, you know, a ton of bills or whatever. And um, and it was probably the lowest point, the low of the low of the low. And um, how did you hold on to your house? My my wife and my mother in law ended up pawning their wedding rings to, for, to, for me to save for That's me love, to save my people. house. That's love. Yeah. And um and and it's humbling. It was a super humbling ex- experience. 
and um, you know, I talk, you know, I talk openly about it, but having to, you know, ask the dean of the school to keep my kids in school, in private school, because we couldn't afford tuition at the time. And, um, but that moment on Ventura Boulevard was like, it just hit me, like, you know, like a, like a ton of bricks, but it was one of those cleansing moments where I just knew I had to crawl back and fight back if I wanted to do it, because in my life, I just didn't have a plan B. Right. It was just, right. you know, it's what else was I, what else was I going to do? Right. And, um, and also just, you know, operating with enough integrity where, you know, if I use this person's services and they trusted me, I got to pay them for their services. Yep. I got to communicate with them. And I communicated with, I literally had a list of creditors, right? Long list. And I would call them. One by one. I don't have any money right now, whatever, yep. Yep. but I'll pay you when I have something. And, you know, luckily enough, I got into a situation where as I was fighting back, I was paying people down and people understood. Totally. People totally understood. Yep. It wasn't one of those things where like, you know, it, it was okay, at least this guy's trying. And a lot of those people I still work with to this very day and they made a lot of money off of our company sure. from then or whatever. But, you know, it's like as fellow entrepreneurs, they had gone through similar things too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. one of my ventures, I literally went through this long period. I had a, a list in my right-hand drawer of people that agreed at my company to not be paid. Mm -hmm. Never had to use that list, but I did a lot of conversations with vendors. And you're right. If you communicate with them, tell them when you might be able to pay them, try yeah. to make that. A, if you're not going to pay them when you said you would, call them ahead of time. Most people are saying, hey, this guy's trying. The other eight people that aren't calling me back, those are the ones I'm mad at. I'm not mad at John. One, 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 of, my men, one of my mentors, who, he's like a new mentor to me, and um, who his career is like, you know, he's been successful and like music. He started his career with a record label called Casablanca Records which was like dance music, Donna Summers back in the day, oh, yeah. went to run Sony Pictures, and um, he started a film company, sold it to Sony, went to run Sony, um, ended up going into like minor league baseball, crushed minor league baseball, ended up saying I want to go into basketball, uh, bought a basketball team for cheap. They became, they're the Golden State Warriors now, <laughs> and now he's in the VR, and he's in his 70s. Wow. And, st and going into VR in his 70s. Super excited about it, right? So I was recently asking him, I was in the middle of a transaction, and I said, well, you know, uh, I'm doing this deal. You know, tell me how you would handle it. I want to get your thoughts, right? And he said, completely the opposite of what other people told me. And he said, you know what? Do the transaction and give, these, give the people that you're talking to Give them 5% of the company. Give them 5%. Do the transaction and give them 5%. Mm. Because so in success, they always can make money with you. That 5% is not going to cost you anything. Yep. And it's going to make you feel so great. But, when, when, um, but the gesture that it's going to send to, to those people or whatever, it goes a long way. Sure. And, um, and I've had lessons where I was less generous in, in, in my career. And I'm like, and so thinking about it and that's like just long term and playing long yep. is very, very, very important. Yeah. I mean, it's great to help set up other people to make money when you make money. Yes. yes. But I want to point something out here. You guys realize 
Troy was talking about his mentor. You know, I've written an article called You're Never Too Old for a Mentor. You're Never Too Old or Too Successful for a Mentor. Yeah. Like, this is for real, guys. Even people that, you know, have tremendous success can still derive my tremendous men, My value. mentors have mentors, by the yeah. way. Like, and that's what, that's, it's, it's funny because I, I learned that um, when I first got into the management business, um, a guy named G, uh, Jimmy Iovine, who uh, founded Interscope and Beats by Dre, Jimmy has yep. been a great mentor, both personally and professionally. And it was funny when I saw that David Geffen was his mentor, <laughs> like, and Doug Morris was his mentor. Yep. And like, you know, they would go to, you know, guys for advice or whatever. And um, so you just kind of see this lineage. And um, so it's always important to have people, your personal board of directors. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's take a question from a student. Um, hello, Troy. Um, obviously, you're very uh, talented at recognizing talent, both in music and in startups. So what I'm wondering is, what do you look for when you're identifying talent um, in a company or an artist? Or what is it that you see in something that really makes you believe in them? All right, now hold on. You want to be a manager. Tell Troy that. You think you want to be that guy that can identify talent and hustle. I do. I want to be a manager. I was lucky enough. Uh, my first year here at UCSB, 19 years old, um, I received a scholarship to Berkeley College of Music last year. Wow. Um, and I know Megan Trainer and uh, Charlie Puth both uh, are alumni. Megan Trainer went to my program. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I just, you know, I'm looking for a mentor. And I, uh, quite frankly, I think I have some skills, not only writing music, but also identifying talent that can take me a long way. And that can help both of us out a lot. And so... You know, if there's any kind of advice you can give me or uh, directions you can point me, I'm all ears and I would love to hear it. You know, so um, so in terms of so me becoming a manager really was about protecting my friend. Like Eve, Eve and I were, were, were friends. And so the instinct that I had from protecting my friend and the humility to ask a ton of questions the worst managers are the guys who come in and they know everything. And there's this certain level of insecurity that, okay, I got to pretend I know everything because, uh, you know, once this client finds out I'm a fraud, it's over, you know? So they, they wear this, they have this sort of veneer and this armor that they put on that everybody can see through and it normally screws things up, right? Um, my first week on the job with Eve, first couple, few months on the job with Eve, we were on a tour with Cash Money and Rough Riders, right? And, um, and I get on the tour bus, and the driver asked if I had the float. I said, yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> James, what's float? <laughs> I had no clue. He's like, you idiot. It's uh, the money that you give the bus driver for gas and tolls and food. <laughs> so, uh, so, of course, I go back, and I give him the float, and... Um, and but that's been my entire career. If I don't understand something, I ask. And I want to know. And I would kind of dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper and dig deeper and never stop. You, you're never going to run out of questions to ask in, the mu- in, in life in general, but specifically in the music business. So having that level of real protection and real curiosity is going to carry you a long way because people are going to respect it. You know, you're going to you're going to stand out amongst everybody else who come into the room as uh, fake managers and know and know it alls. Right. Um, in terms of being able to recognize talent, um, it's a little different. On so it's 
a lot in common between artists and entrepreneurs, and then it's a lot different, right? Um, because it's um, very tangible things that I want to be able to understand on both sides. Songwriters. I love songwriters. Can this person write songs? Are they talented, number one? Can they sing? Can they rap? Whatever that talent is, are they exceptional in, in, in that sense, right? Um, do they got hits? Um, are they a superstar? Do, do they have that persona when they walk in the room? Like, wow, that, that sort of star factor. So those, those, and then the underlying data. I want to look at their SoundCloud, their YouTube, you know, all of those things. Is it some sort of early indicators there? Because what that shows me is that that person has the work ethic to go out and build their own audience. So they're not going to be a lazy artist that you got to drag across the finish line. They're going to be somebody that constantly goes at it and works. There's a lot of information you get there when somebody walks in a room after after they've done the hard work already. On the side of entrepreneurs... It's I want to know about your business. You know, I, I want to know about you, what you've been through, what you know, all of those the soft skills that they call that I feel like are, are actually the hard skills. And then all of the basic questions that I want to know about that domain expertise I'm talking about, the, that addressable market that you're going after. Are you going to be that guy or girl who, who's willing to drive a Mack truck through a cul-de-sac to get it done. You know, so it's all of those things that, that we look for and then kind of weigh it from there and make a decision. And hopefully I'm right more times than, than I'm wrong. Okay, thank you, yeah. And read the, read, the operate, read the operator from David Geffen. And it, it's, it's a very, it's old school, but, um, but is to me, when we talk about the art of hustle, David is a, he, he was a hustler that built a tremendous career, but the operator is like the manager's Bible. Yeah. You so You're welcome. Let's, let's talk about a, a woman that was willing to drive a Mack truck. So L.A. Reed has a good nose for talent, as you know, everyone knows. And, and um, Stephanie had worked with L.A. Reed, had done some demos. They dropped her for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. A lot of people and investing is very much a herd mentality, mm-hmm. you know, we, I try to be a lead investor most of the time, but I'm telling you, it's easier when you got other guys saying, hey, I'll come in too if you'll come in. Just, it just social norming makes a difference. So here you have one of the best nose in the, noses in the business saying, I don't want anything to do with her or whatever. For whatever reason, he cut her loose. She walks into your office with basically the persona intact. She was sleeping on a grandmother's couch or whatever, mm-hmm. so she, she was nowhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just curious, like, that moment that she put that tape in there, like, was it, was it just her at the piano with these full-on demos? How did that moment go down? And were you just smitten? And, is that when you said, I'm all in? Or was it more of, well, maybe? So it's funny. L.A. Reid and I become, we, I, I hadn't known L.A. until probably a couple of years now, you know, when we started working with Megan Trainer together. So he and I really never had done any oh, come business together. come on, you never together. said, hey, Lady Gaga, by the way, she had a few hits. <laughs> <laughs> no. Sorry, you missed that one. No, you know what? But he didn't. And he didn't miss it. And that's what I had to convince him. <laughs> I had to convince him because Lady Gaga wouldn't be Lady Gaga if L.A. Reid hadn't dropped mm, her. Mm, yep. So when L.A. signed Gaga, she was a piano player. Uh, Okay. And she didn't have a lot of the songs that, you know, ended up becoming the big hits or whatever. And um, and so what you saw in terms of that, which she become, which she had become mm-hmm. wasn't. So it wasn't only L.A. that dropped her. Um, 
Universal passed on her, um, Atlantic passed on her, Sony passed on her. Some of the best A&R people in the business had passed on her. And um, and so it wasn't an anomaly for, you know, for for L.A. And he was killing himself over it because she'd become the biggest star in the world. But what happened was that thing that you get from failure, she developed it. She developed it based off of failure right. and um, that had given her this sort of th- this thing that it kicked into overdrive. So I was just reading an article over the weekend on uh, no, it was a podcast I was listening to driving and, um, and it's you listen to it. I, it is it's, it's sports related, but it is phenomenal. It is Bill Simmons interviewing. Um, uh, Draymond Green from Golden State Warriors. And it's a 45-minute interview that's phenomenal. And they're talking about how the Warriors developed as players. It's, it's, it's better than any Harvard case study you'll ever read. And, um, and But when they talk about Steph Curry specifically and how it was Game 7 uh, Golden State Warriors against the Clippers that I was actually at that game when the Clippers beat Golden State Warriors that that's when Steph Curry was born mm. losing that game mm-hmm. game seven is when Steph Curry was born and a lot of people can fall apart in those moments but when you look at this is a good book idea actually game seven for Steph L.A. Reid drops Lady Gaga. <laughs> it's like the, uh, Travis from Uber failing at his last company. Mm-hmm. It's these moments that, that end up becoming these huge yep. accents. Oh, yeah, I'm going to write this book. You guys were here. <laughs> it's these huge moments. Well, you and the car, Ventura <laughs> Boulevard. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's these sort of moments yep. where, where you kind of, um, you, you, that, that are, are these telling moments of you become who you become. Right. And, and that, that was that moment for Gaga. And, um, and she had this maniacal work ethic, the same exact work ethic that Will Smith had, um, the same exact work ethic that P. Diddy had that I recognized right, right away. And you just can kind of see it in somebody's swagger. Totally. And, um, and you get in, in the songs that she came in the office and played were these d- new demos that she had done in between uh, that period. Okay. And that was, okay, this girl, she's, she said, I'm going to be the biggest star in the world. So John Lennon used to say, I'm going to be bigger than Elvis. Mm-hmm. When he was a 17-year-old kid mm-hmm. in Nowheresville, right? Mm-hmm. Like Liverpool was Nowheresville. Mm-hmm. But it's having that, you know, getting back to the alchemist for a minute, it's having that North Star. It's okay to have that North Star. And in fact, you have to have that North Star. And about 90% of the people can pick a North Star that mm-hmm. they'd like to be. Mm-hmm. It's the 10% that then say, here's how I'm going to get there. Mm-hmm. And I know with um, Lady Gaga and you, you guys laid it out. So I want to talk about the first 50 fans in a minute. But I'm just curious. So everyone has ups and downs. And it's how you react to those can I, ups Can and I downs. write this idea down yes. really quick? I'm sorry. Somebody, go- somebody send <laughs> you guys, me an email. I'm going now. I'm going. So, so while you're doing that, let me ask you. Mm-hmm. Did you guys ever have like a quiet moment on a tour bus or in the green room or back at the hotel? Not not on the not not during the ascension when you were at the top, but on the way up. Maybe maybe it was with the right analogies. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's like on the in the back of the SUV when you're going to the fourth gig of the night. Mm-hmm. Did you ever feel like there was? Did you guys ever like question whether this was going to happen or was there ever? Yeah, yeah. It was tough. The first the first year, 
was a, a grind because we couldn't get the music played on the radio. Yep. And, um, and so everybody basically told us, um, no, you know, every single time it was, you know, it, yep. it, it was a no. So and they um, were experts, Troy. Why didn't you listen to them? Because we, 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 we knew the music was great. Exactly. And it just was finding which venue it was, you know, and you get early indicators. And, you know, that's the other thing that you're going to, as a, as a manager, you're going to um, start developing the nose, right? Is that thing of when there's smoke, there's fire. And going to that first, the concept of the first 50. But if you get those moments, and it was one moment for us where I remember driving down Wilshire Boulevard. Um, we, we were having our first, con- our first real concert in L.A., where we had sold tickets to, and I drove by the, the Wiltern Theater on my way downtown, and our show was at the Wiltern, but I was just happened to be driving past, and I saw uh, kids sleeping on the street at the theater with lightning bolts on their faces. Mm. And that's when I said, okay, we got something. Right, right. We definitely got something, because they... People don't sleep on the streets, you know, yeah. and these weren't homeless people with right. lightning bolts. Right, right, right. These were like real fans and you could tell. Yep. And that's when, you know, we had to take that little bit of data and then give that data to somebody else yep. and convince them to play. Then, you know, so yep. it's this whole thing of, of, of storytelling that we had to do around. And it's it. your job. I think, you know, a lazy entrepreneur is, you know, they externalize it and they say, well, I heard no all these times. You heard no for a reason. Mm-hmm. Give them a reason to say yes. It's your job to find the reason to say yes. It's not their job to say yes. Yep. And you guys did that. So I love that, you know, having the North Star is important, but then them being able to walk that walk and, you know, the Wilton or whatever. I mean, you know, she had to do that 150 times before she could do a bigger venue. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about the first 50 in the sense of I think it's, it, it's, it's very analogous to startups. Startups want to have, you know, 10 million downloads and 500,000 daily users, and we all want that. But it never happens that way. It never happens overnight. How did you guys grind that out with the first 50, then the first 500, and then the first whatever? It was, and, and it's funny because as a manager, like, you know, um, it, developing that relationship, we, we literally knew the fans' names. Mm. You know, we yep. like literally knew their names. Yep. They had my email address. They had my phone number. They would work for us. They would, you know, we would send them things. Uh, you know, it would be literally every autograph, you know, every picture. You know, um, it was like our very personal relationship building that community from the, from the very beginning. So where the fans weren't taken for granted. Yep. And those first 50 fans, you know, turned into 100. And, uh, and then, you know, and you, you, now it's like, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, it's, you, you see Beyonce with the Beehive, right? And, um, and with this fan group that she built. You see One Direction fans with the, the Directioners. You see, um, you know, all, all, all of these fan groups or whatever. That comes from really building community and yep. really feeling that connection and really having that communication. Yep. And, um, and you got and you got to nurture those relationships. So whether that, you know, in business, that's real. That's your customers. Absolutely. That's customers. That's being able to really know your customers by name, you know, for you to walk the floors of your stores or for you 
to actually go into um, the, the, the chat, the messaging boards and, and you know, on Twitter with, with customers is all yep. is, is, yep. Is, the, is those sort of things. It's completely analogous to business. I know when you were saying that I was shaking my head because when in all of my ventures, those first five or six customers, I knew their name. I knew their wife's name. I knew their kids names. Mm-hmm. I knew what their kids hobbies were. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely had a connection with them. It wasn't just so I could sell them more stuff. Mm-hmm. I knew the importance that, of a reference from one of those people. I remember Comcast was one of our first customers. Cox Communications was a big one. Being able to know that somebody in Atlanta would pick up a phone when I needed them to say good things about my mm-hmm. two-bit company mm-hmm. that they really shouldn't have done business mm-hmm. with in the first place. Mm-hmm. Hugely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's overlooked by so many people. They want to get to $5 million. They don't want to. They're not satisfied with the first 50. You've got to get the first 50. So I love one thing I heard you say was you invest both, both in the media side but also in the entrepreneurial side mm-hmm. in archetypes. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what do you mean by an archetype and then what do you look for when you're sitting down from somebody and you screen out a lot of people in your, in your, in your very busy week. What are you looking for to, to determine is this an archetype or not? Yeah, so we, you know, um, you know, prior to five years ago, I, I never heard the term venture capital before. So I had no clue um, what venture capital was. And um, so and I wasn't, profe- uh, you know, professionally trained or went to school for um, finance or anything like that. So um, my lens of investment comes through being a consumer common sense and understanding Mm -hmm. culture and consumer and consumer behavior. So we do a lot of, so, and so from being young and traveling the world, being on tour, you go to all of these countries and you see how people dress, what people are eating, what the slang is, you know, how people wearing their hair, what kind of technology, you know, people are using you. So you're seeing all of these things Mm -hmm. and, and kind of really developing this sort of cultural filtered, like just kind of understanding and not being locked into right. the Western way of doing things or, yep. or seeing things. Yep. So when I started investing, it just was really based off of does this does this product make sense? Is this person real? Um, you know, is, is my West Philly spidey sense <laughs> going off like that bullshit detector, right. you know, ringing right now? Right, right. So, you know, so your feet and all of these things or whatever. And then we also do a lot of cultural research around where the white space is at in mm-hmm. terms of, um, of, of like right now, one of the things that we're pretty obsessing over is, you know, just this sort of postgraduate living, right? And, and so when you marry postgraduate living with um, community, with uh, also this, the whole, con- you marry that with the concept of access versus ownership, um, is so many opportunities. And so we're the list of those opportunities. You know, one company that we're looking at is in the, uh, is like almost like Dropbox for, uh, your real things or whatever, and then what the economy that lives under uh, under that. So mm-hmm. where in my generation, if I was going to um, cut down a, a, a tree branch, I'd go to Home Depot and buy a chainsaw yep. to cut down a tree branch. That and that chainsaw would live in my garage 
for the next 20 Absolutely. years, and I probably would use it three times. <laughs> well, then you try to use it and it wouldn't work. And... No, exa exactly. <laughs> so versus I just need access to this thing one time. Right. So it's like, so it's this whole economy that exists underneath it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, investing in Uber and Lyft, um, and uh, we saw an opportunity in the rent-a-car space, and so that uh, we invested in Skirt. Because if people are get, giving up car ownership and they don't have cars, but you still, if you're going to drive, if you don't have a car, you're not going to Uber to Coachella. Right. You know what I'm saying? Take the helicopter. Yeah, no, exactly. And you can't <laughs> afford, most kids can't afford the Uber copter. Right. And um, so, so chances are you would rent a car. And Skirt is kind of providing a solution for those sort of short, shorter distances. The, um, so... Just kind of so we analyze all of these things and then we look at the entrepreneurs and say, are these the people that are going to take are, are these people going to take the market? Right. Right. I love that you're looking for the white space and not because you know, it is a limbing profession. I mean, you know, it. It's, so many people follow. It's great to try to say, I know that's popular right now. But what, what about over here? Yep. So we're running out of time. I have twice as many questions to ask you as I have time. But Speed I want to I want to end. <laughs> no, I just want to end on I want to go back to the alchemist. And we talk about living your legend in here. A good friend of mine, Scott Densmore, has a very powerful um, movement called Live Your Legend. What is I want to want to know your legend and, if, and to give you a little bit more um, structure around that. What's your legacy? What's Troy Carter's legacy? You're 25, 30 years from now. You're looking back. What do you want that legacy to be? Um, you know, it's, it's, before I, I would say um, I wasn't really focused on legacy, but like now it's like, um, I think just my, I think you, you hit a certain age and, and you, things start shifting a totally. bit and you used to kind of start thinking about things. If you'd like me, you start getting gray hair. <laughs> I just keep mine low. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, you, right now I'm just kind of looking at how can I, how can I open the door for other people from similar circumstances to be successful? Yep. And, what, and what does it look like and what, and what does it mean? And, you know, right now when you look at... Um, most, or, you know, you look at Chicago and it's like Chicago's worse than Iraq right now mm. in terms of, you know, the amount of young, um, young kids being murdered in the streets, just like they're worthless, though, by other kids that look just like them, you right. know, who feel like they're worthless, right. you know, so there's like, you know, not, nothing to lose. And, um, and we're just kind of seeing it systematically. And then when you look at circumstances like, um, you know, whether it's, uh, Trayvon Martin getting killed and like, you know, the police shootings that are happening. And, um, and no matter what side of the, you know, of the fence you, you sit on, and I'm not saying, um, you know, against cops or for cops or, or, or any specific circumstance, but I don't think, you know, being born and raised in America, everybody deserves a fair shake and a, and a fair opportunity. Yep. And nobody should be prejudged by the zip code that they were born in or the, or the color of their skin or who their families are yep. or the pronunciation of their name or their religion. So, you know, how, and, and I've been blessed enough in my life to feel the responsibility to be able to say, okay, you know what? It, it, it is no way in the world if people would have gone back and traced the zip code that I came from that 
I should be sitting on stage at, you know, and a, a guy who dropped out of school and, and um, at 16 and, you know, grew up in, in West Philly and, you know, all, and, you know, my, my dad was in jail for murder, for murder from the time I was seven to, you know, until I was 20, single mother with three sons. You look at all of those things and it's like, okay, we know exactly yep. the, the pathway where, where, where that goes, yep. right? Yep. Um, so my thing is I just want to be able to open up some opportunities for, for, for other people. So where my work isn't based upon money, you know, and um, before it was like, okay, I want to have a certain dollar figure. Sure. And, um, and now I realize the meaning in the, behind it because I think having a certain level of, uh, financial stability gives you a certain level of freedom and leverage to be able to do certain things for other people and that you know that uh, that that hopefully uh, blows the doors off I want to be able to blow the door off it and not just open it I want to be able mm. to blow the door off nice. of these kids and it reverberates every person you touch yes. is touching someone else and it just keeps yes. going and going on and on and on yep. I thought you were going to say something about recapitulating, but we're able to work that in maybe next time. Troy, that's a great legacy. I'm so appreciative of your time. Thanks so much cool. for coming. No, thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.